I'm now joined by Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors, who currently offers about 140 ETFs, nearly $1.2 trillion in assets. And I always say nobody in the ETF space is more on top of flows and performance data and really everything occurring underneath the surface of the ETF industry than Matt, who is now on the line with me from Boston. Matt, welcome back to the uh, podcast. How have you been? I've been great. I mean, you know, even better considering your Chiefs beat my Patriots because that means we're probably going to get a top two pick. So I'm happy. We are the new dynasty. You're you're the old dynasty. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I wouldn't go that far, but uh, sure. All right. uh, Look, I'm really excited about our topic this week because uh, you're going to discuss three mistakes ETF investors made this year and then offer some potential uh, remedies to these mishaps, shall we say. And uh, I'll say that if investors only made three mistakes this year, they're probably way better off than most because I feel like everyone was pretty doomsday-ish coming into the year. Uh, However, before we, uh, we get to those, let's tie a bow on 2023 because I just mentioned nobody covers ETF flows better than you do and you are actually I don't know if you know this you're the last guest on the podcast this year so uh, oh, that's great yeah so so just give us your overall summary of 2023 as you look back on what we saw from uh, ETF flows yeah I mean it's been an interesting year uh, so as we stand today 546 billion so that'd be the fourth consecutive year that ETFs have surpassed 500 billion of flows in the calendar year it's the third most uh, right behind 2022 which had 618 billion once you account for the uh, mutual fund ETF conversions um, and then you had 905 billion in 2021 so pretty strong year what I think is interesting when you dig beneath the surface though is that 80 percent of those flows have gone to two mutually exclusive groups so roughly about 55 percent of those flows went into low-cost vehicles um, and low-cost ETFs roughly based on our definition which I think is pretty rigorous um, they basically have a 48% market share of overall assets. So it's obviously an increasing amount of usage, right? 55% share of flows versus 48% market share. The other flows, 25% of them went into active funds. And active ETFs only have roughly about a 6.5% market share. So a massive uptick in usage, particularly given that overall act- active flows this year are $125 billion, which is a record and assets have now swelled to $523 billion. And there are, you know, 1,300 active ETFs out there, which, you know, that's a big number, but some of it's a little bit inflated because of those defined outcome funds that have calendar year vintages. But still, it's pretty noteworthy. And I think the fact that those two areas receive such large inflows reinforces the secular usage of ETFs for strategic asset allocation purposes and not so much that ETFs are just for these tactical sort of day trading varieties. Um, but I think the other thing is, again, sort of, you know, bifurcating what we've seen over the last two months where this rally was really kickstarted with the idea of, you know, rate cuts. Um, before the, this rally, those percentages were much higher because there was such a hesitancy, a reluctancy to express risk in this market, um, where you did see those tactical elements having uh, you know, pretty much outflows, right? If you think sectors, sectors were in net outflows and they still are, but they were like 15 billion of outflows. High yield was in 15 billion of outflows. But since the rally, we started to see those tactical usages come back. Sectors had 7 billion in November. High yield ETFs posted record flows in November and have already added another 3 billion. 
But I think this year just really underscores and underpins the secular use case of ETFs to build robust strategic asset, asset allocation portfolios that are fee efficient, tax efficient, but also where you can now start to express active strategies that have identifiable track records because a lot of them do now. Just so I'm following on those two broader trends that you mentioned, so flows into uh, low-cost ETFs and then flows into active ETFs, you, you mentioned these being mutually exclusive groups. Yeah. And maybe I wasn't tracking fully, but I, I would argue that if you look at the quote-unquote rise of active ETFs overall, I would say a lot of the flows have gone into what I would call low-cost active. Right. If you if you look at some of the issuers out there and the expense ratios, I'm just curious, how do you how do you think about those two categories as, as being mutually exclusive? So low cost active is kind of like a cat that barks. Right. It's still active. It's still going to charge a premium over what you get for just traditional beta. I see. Um, and if you look at what our funds have, like we have SPLG, it's two basis points and. Some of the low-cost active, which, yeah, that's not the 100 basis point, you know, legacy mutual fund style. Uh, maybe, you know, you're looking at the 15 to 16 basis points, but you're still an order of magnitude far greater than what you can get for just the lowest beta. And that's how we build up this process is that we actually look at, you know, where the midpoint of the category is and then start to move lower into some of the bottom decile of, of fees. And that's how we get a group that is really, really low cost. You know, when you're, you're talking about high-yield ETFs at five basis points versus a high-yield um, uh, active ETF that might be 35, like, that's a pretty big difference. And so that's how they're mutually exclusive. Um, and, and they are. Like, when we bifurcate these two categories together, there's no overlap. And I think that actual, actually helps sort of indicate buying behavior motivations. No, that makes perfect sense. You're right. If you look at something like SPLG at two basis points, uh, even what would be considered low cost active is is what you know ten times <laughs> more expensive, yeah. uh, fifteen times, twenty times more expensive. So that that makes sense. Um, with overall ETF flows, you, you know, to landing somewhere, what, what are they at? Five? Would you say five forty six billion right now? Uh, yeah, five forty six. So so let's say they land somewhere close to six hundred billion. Can you offer any context on that? Because coming into the year. I actually made the prediction that ETF flows would hit a trillion dollars this year. And so on one hand, for me, uh, it's tough not to look at that, whatever, 550, 600 billion and feel some disappointment. But on the other hand, as you noted, th this is going to be the third best year of inflows ever. So, so can you offer some context here other than maybe I just made a bad prediction? <laughs> Um, no, I think I, I think part of it is some of those flows that you probably were projecting to go into ETFs went into money market funds, right? Money market funds took a trillion dollars. You know, one of the big gainers of the ETF industry were these ultra-short duration government bond ETFs up until basically the last two months where we saw a significant rally. But if we look at just, you know, that ultra, ultra short-term category, they took in, you know, roughly 21% of all fixed income flows, but yet they only account for 14% of the overall fixed income assets. And again, this is before the, I mean, this is after we saw roughly 12 billion leave in the last two months. So I think your projection, maybe, uh, if you wait a year, I think you might get there, right? So I think the, the inflows into the money market funds, you had T-bill at five and a half percent. You know, that kind of was the whole idea of T-bill and chill. That's not going to be the case in 2024. Um, so, I, you know, I, the, the, 
I think there's going there still is a lot of strength in the ETF industry, right? I mean, just the fact that we have 546 billion, third most ever. Um, I think the one other thing beneath the surface is that you know we're at 197 billion for fixed income ETFs. They're likely to hit 200 billion. You know, there's only three billion away, and we have a couple more trading days left. That's really impressive, given that you know the AG up until a couple of days ago was looking to have its third consecutive year of negative returns. So people were still allocating strategically to fixed income, and the tactical underpinnings were going into short-term bond exposures. But when the rally flipped, they where'd they go? They went into high yield, right? And I think that sort of showcases the the diversity. Uh, and the choice within fixed income ETFs as well. I'm just going to use your first point on money market funds as the uh, big excuse for my bad prediction. I like that. Flows into <laughs> money market funds, <laughs> which I, I do yeah, think I mean, a lot too. But it's like why Patrick Mahomes is going to win the MVP this year. He has no wide receivers. Still a good quarterback. This is going to be wide receivers. All right, let's continue with the sports analogies because uh, I, I'd love to have you talk about fourth quarter ETF flows. And, and for listeners uh, who aren't aware, you publish a monthly piece on ETF flows. And I, I would say like 90% plus of these have some sort of sports reference, right? <laughs> and in your most recent piece, you, you talked about fourth quarter comebacks in the NBA. And of course, you, you somehow worked in the, the 2002 Celtics and, and tied that to fourth quarter ETF flows. But on a serious note, why do ETF flows tend to make a comeback in the fourth quarter? Are there any specific reasons you can point to? I mean, we're seeing monster uh, inflows in SPY just over the past week or two. Yeah, and it's not all sports references. I did make a geological reference in the (laughs) September issue, which I think went over many many of folks' heads. Um, It was very very much of a deep cut. Um, But, yeah, for the fourth quarter flows, uh, you know, part of it is, is SPY, right? Part of it's going to be SPY. Um, and we're seeing that in the last few days. But I would say, you know, more broadly, there's sort of four factors. Uh, the first being tax motivations. So you have a lot of mutual funds declaring capital gains. You have also perhaps, and we've, we've seen this as it relates to SPY, um, you have, you know, single stocks that are maybe trading at losses. And you sell those, you own SPY, and you basically market hedge for the rest of the year and then go back into the stocks in the new year. And that could be a variety of, you know, either retail traders or hedge funds, what have you. So tax motivation, again, those mutual funds posting capital gains, that's a reason to act. We've seen people leave and then go into ETFs, and that can add as an accelerant to fund flows in the fourth quarter. Um, there are also some structural impacts. Again, this is sort of very much SPY-specific. So, you know, if you're holding futures over year-end, there's a different tax treatment, even though you haven't realized those gains. Um, you can hold SPY instead of futures, and therefore you're not going to be subject to those tax consequences on an unrealized basis. The other one, again, this is more specific from a tactical usage relative to either funds like SPY or other ones with a heavy derivative ecosystem, you know, um, some of the tech, more tech-heavy uh, funds from competitors. You know, there's some arbitrage trades that you can do based on the funding environment of the futures market where it might be more beneficial to hold, hold physicals um, relative to synthetics. Again, very super technical. So I would say these are like these structural um, or operational impacts of ETFs that are really, really interesting when you dig into them. But on the face of it, they're, they're probably more accounting-specific than anything else. And the fourth one is just window dressing. Um, I think yeah. that's pretty common. 
But, you know, we do see the seasonality take place. And, you know, in our business, we see it with SPY a lot, sectors, and some of the other more heavy liquidity vehicles, too. Yeah, it's amazing. I just feel like every single year it's the same story where we, we just see these massive flows in the fourth quarter. So do you think we'll, we will end up around $600 billion for the year, if you had a guess? I mean, we're at 546 now. $600 billion seems like a lot, given we only have, you know, roughly uh, right. a couple weeks. eight trading days. You know, I would probably put I'd probably peg it around five seventy two. Yeah, if I had to if I had to get. I like the specificity there. Um all right, before yeah. we move on, because I, I don't want to get too much further lost in the weeds on flows, but every time you are on the podcast, I, I just love asking you about the sector spiders because I, I truly believe, Matt, nobody has a better handle on ETF sector flows and performance than you two than you do. And I was uh, looking at, at really both of those this morning. Here's what stood out to me. The technology sector is leading in flows, which I don't think that's a huge surprise to anyone, but consumer discretionary is second. And then if you look at the outflow side, it's energy and healthcare by far are, are the worst uh, in, in terms of outflows. And so, again, I don't want to get too far in the weeds here, but what, what do you make of sector ETF flows and performance in 2023? It's, it's buying what has worked. There are three sectors that are outperforming the broader S&P 500 this year, tech, Consumer, uh, consumer discretionary and communication services. Those three sectors are the only ones with significant and noticeable inflows this year. Those together have taken in $16 billion this year. The rest of the sector complex has had $23 billion of outflows, led by healthcare, which had the worst, around $9 billion. And the reason there is, you know, in a market devoid of growth, because earnings growth was flat, you buy growth, right? And those three sectors were reflective of high growth, high growth expectations, AI-fueled frenzies, market concentration with dominant leaders, strong price momentum, and the ones like healthcare that saw outflows, it's a defensive sector that was not really sought after because a recession never came, right? And I think a lot of people probably piled in in 2022 uh, and hope, not hopes, but sort of preparing for an economic slowdown and a recessionary environment, and that recession never came. And so you're saw within sectors of buying what of what has worked, right? More of a momentum chase than anything else. With uh, sector ETF flows overall, and again, sector ETFs not having a, a great year. Do you think thematic ETFs have anything to do with that at all? Not that thematic ETFs have had a, a great year flow wise, but just that maybe they're capturing some attention that otherwise would have gone into traditional sector ETFs. No, I mean, we have the, the sector flows that I'm referencing, we actually strip out a lot of the thematics just because we think the, the motivations are going to be a little bit different there. Thematics are plagued with even worse trends. You know, they've had outflows, I think, something to the effect of like 10 out of the, you know, 12 months this year. Um, and, and again, in an environment with high real rates, if you, a lot of these thematic funds hold a lot of unprofitable firms uh, that are really expensive because their earnings you know, again, they're negative. Um, uh, that's not a very conducive environment for uh, sort of risk taking, and we, we've seen that they have had 2.6 billion of outflows based on our classification. Which again, everyone can have different classifications. We we tend to like ours. Uh, 2.6 billion of outflows in 2023. The only area with actual inflows is unsurprisingly robotics and AI. Right. So without that, the flow picture would be even worse. So I don't think they're taking away. I just think going into this year, there's a little hesitancy to express risk. You had a risk event around the regional banking crisis in March. 
you had continued recessionary fears and drumbeats out there. You do have an earnings recession, and you had concentrated market returns. So when the returns are that concentrated, it's hard to make a specific allocation outside of the benchmark. And you saw that within sectors that bought the top three sectors. And, you know, next year, if there's a broadening of the rally, you would probably see some mean reversion and and more – uh, sort of convicted stance and sector flows where you have more diversity. Well, what a great recap of uh, 2023 TF flows. I knew you would knock the cover off the ball on that. Um, all right, with our remaining time, let's get to these three mistakes ETF investors made this year, which you have provided me with those three mistakes, right? You've already given me the list. And so I thought I'll tee these up. You can maybe offer a little bit of color on each one. And then uh, I would say more importantly, offer the potential remedy for 2024. And as always, none of this is investment advice. Listeners, do your own homework. I know everyone gets tired of me saying that, but uh, we're here to hopefully just help educate and offer unique perspective. You need to decide on your own what makes sense for you. Uh, And so with with that, Matt, let's go through these. And the first one, um, I I like this. You say ETF investors underallocated to gold while the rest of the world bought it. And I'm not sure if you're aware of this. I was actually just visiting with uh, Vetify's Todd Rosenbluth. So one of my 2023 ETF predictions was that physical gold ETF inflows would exceed $5 billion in assets. It's been exactly the opposite, right? Just brutal outflows, even though gold is up 11% this year. And it's outperformed the S&P 500 if you go back to the beginning of, of last year. So, so what's going on here with gold? Yeah, and I would sort of couch this as not as like three mistakes, but sort of three missed opportunities, right? To try to be a little bit more positive and constructive, because uh, we all make mistakes <laughs> in this world. But we can, there can be you know missed opportunities, and I think gold is one of them. You know, like you you reference, you know, uh, gold is up double digits this year. It hit an all time high. Central banks have bought more. There's been more fundamental demand. Um, in an environment like that, you know, if you take a person off the street and you say, hey, look, this is an asset that is up double digits, it's at an all-time high, and you mention that all these other people are buying it, and you how much do you think uh, ETF investors bought? They, they probably would have done the same thing and projected, like, oh, $5 billion of inflows. Probably. That makes sense. Um, and there's been outflows. And there's been outflows in you know, more than half the, the month this year. So that's a real missed opportunity. And I think some of it is, you know, again, trying to parse through all the information is, Again, you know, maybe they didn't want to be in defensive asset uh, when there is no recession or, or what have you. Um, but actually, the macro backdrop has been supportive because the dollar has fallen and the dollar has a negative correlation to gold. So I just think it's a missed opportunity. And I think the remedy is pretty easy in this one is to maybe reevaluate your allocation to gold this year. You know, if you have a strategic allocation and you maybe pared it down. Uh, consider, you know, going back up to it because there's strategic benefits long term. Uh, if you don't own any, you know, do the work. Put the work in and you, know, you can visit our website, talk to any of our, our, anyone on our gold team about the, the potential benefits that gold can provide in a portfolio. Um, so I think in the remedy for this missed opportunity is quite easy. Just, you know, do the homework and, and try to think about where gold can fit in your portfolios because if it was in your portfolio this year and last year, that's, it would be additive to your 60-40 returns. Yeah, and of course, State Street does offer uh, two very popular gold ETFs in GLD and GLDM. Um, All right, the second, what what we'll call missed opportunity that ETF investors uh, had in 2023 was over-allocating to derivative income funds based on past returns. 
Uh, and you said that led to a large sum of money underperforming the market this year and uh, missing out on gains. And, and once again, I love this. I was just talking about this in, in the prior segment. And you didn't give me any examples here, but I'm going to offer up the obvious one, if you don't mind, uh, which is JEPI, the J.P. Morgan Equity Premium Income ETF, because this thing took in $13 billion this year. And I, I checked this morning, it's underperformed the S&P 500 by 16%, 16%. So uh, give us some color on this one. And then, again, I would say more importantly, explain what you think the potential remedy is. Yeah, I mean, this isn't sort of admonishing any single funds. You know, the derivative income category is there to produce income. And the way you do that is by modifying a risk factor, by selling volatility and, and selling calls to funnel income back into the strategy. Um, I think the the missed opportunity is, you know, it's sort of the shiny toy syndrome, right? A lot of assets went into it, you know, in some regards, maybe using it as a core of a portfolio for income generation. The the missed opportunity remedy here is, you know, you can continue to use these strategies. Again, they are effective at producing income, which is what their, you know, objective is. But I think when, you know, comparing this to other income-producing asset classes that had not seen inflows, this is where the missed opportunity is because, you know, Again, up until the past two months, high yield and senior loan ETFs, they hadn't had any inflows. And when you look at the income potential of a high yield bond ETF or of a senior loan ETF, or even, again, you know, not to always showcase our funds, but want an active fund that blends those two together, the income profile, particularly on a, even more so on a total return basis, right, um, is really strong, right? It's actually better than what you would get this year in that sort of derivative income category. So this opportunity is sort of honing in on sort of the brand new way to get income and not realizing that the traditional sources, given the rate environment, um, can also offer income plus total return. And that that was a missed opportunity this year where we saw, again, up until like the last month and a half, a severe underallocation to credit. And credit has been supportive this year, not only from an income perspective, but on a total return basis as well. Couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, I, I think that derivative income category, it did become the shiny object ca- uh, category. And so some investors became enamored with that and forgot about some, some other categories that work. But uh, yeah. I, I, I love that one. All right. The third missed opportunity you noted was ETF investors increasing home bias. And you pointed out that uh, this home bias also comes complete with increased concentration risk, which I'm assuming uh, you're referring to the top heaviness of uh, market cap-weighted indices. Now, I I do have a pushback for you on this, uh, and and that's because I think I know what you're going to say, but first give us your rationale and the uh, potential remedy on this. Yeah, so the home bias comes from the fact that 80% of equity flows have gone into U.S.-focused exposures this year, which is right in line with the AUM. So the home bias has been, like, ongoingly um, implemented for basically the life of ETFs. But the, re- the home home bias is reinforcing that concentration concerns because the this year's returns were heavily concentrated, where the Magnificent Seven made up two-thirds of the S&P 500's return, and those stocks now make up 30% of the overall market capitalization. So the home bias is now really a Magnificent Seven bias as well. Now, if you think about it, in then massively super back-of-the-envelope math, right? It says if 80% of the flows went into U.S. exposures and seven stocks make up 30%, all else equal, you're looking at roughly 20 to 25% of all the flows went to just seven stocks. So home bias is now a concentration risk. Now, 
you can parse out this missed opportunity in many different ways, and your pushback is 100% valid. And the, maybe the home bias doesn't mean anything more because how much, particularly those seven firms, but also others within the U.S., how much those firms generate revenue overseas. So the you know, S&P 500, you know, compared to maybe 30 years ago, is way more globally diverse from a revenue perspective. But the big thing about this is, is that regionally, drivers of returns are very different. And if you have different drivers of returns, that can lead to diversification. I think a good example of this is that I bet if you ask anybody, they say, what was the best performing region this year? They'll just be like, oh, the U.S., not realizing that the Eurozone equities have done better year to date as of today. So that's kind of a missed opportunity if you're only allocating into the U.S. So I think that that's kind of it. The whole takeaway is that maybe it's okay to have a bit of a home bias, just given how globally diverse firms are. But maybe don't do 80% of the allocation. You know, maybe come down a little bit, 70%, bring in some diversification, pick up how, you know, different regions are impacted differently by, you know, economic trends or what have you. So this missed opportunity is just sort of understanding how your money is being allocated. And strategically, if you're always doing 80%, that's concentration risk too. Yeah, we only have about a minute left. My, my main pushback on this, Matt, is that, International stocks have been a, a dog for the past decade now. Like if I look at two ETFs tracking the MSCI EFA and MSCI uh, emerging markets, they're up about 53% and 18% respectively over the past 10 years versus yeah. the S&P 500 up 213%. And those numbers actually get worse if you go back, say, 15 years. And I just feel like every year we keep hearing this is going to be the year for uh, international, right? Just wait. It, it's undervalued. U.S. stocks are overvalued. This is a, a, a no-brainer. And just about every year we're disappointed. Now, I, obviously, and I've talked about this plenty on the podcast, I'm a believer in being globally diversified. I, I just think it's difficult for a lot of advisors and investors when you look at that uh, allocation Again, go back 10, 15 years, it, it hasn't done much in a portfolio. So I, I just think it's going to be hard for people to increase that exposure until they see a reason otherwise. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't disagree. I just think if you're going 80% into the U.S., you know, maybe you're leaving a little, um, you know, putting too much into to one allocation. And I think that's the big thing is just sort of understanding how the assets are being implemented. And, you know, like I said, 70% is just a little bit better. And so that's sort of a, one of the missed opportunities is, identi- is is just the fact that, you know, again, Eurozone equities did, did better this year. But also this home bias is now manifesting itself into sort of concentration risks. And perhaps you can even go into like mid caps or small caps. So there's just different things you can do from an allocation perspective. Well, Matt, we will have to leave it there. Uh, I hope you and your family enjoy the holiday season. Certainly look forward to connecting again uh, in the new year. Thank you for joining me this week. Yeah, thank you. That was Matt Bartolini, head of Spider America's research at State Street Global Advisors.